Hey everyone, Josh Topolsky here. I'm back in your feed because I have a new show coming out, the iHeart Podcast on October 27th. It's called What Future? If you like what you hear, and I think that you will because I know you and I know your heart, please subscribe on whatever platform you're using, whatever you're listening to right now, so you can get all the new episodes. See you there, and thanks for listening. Hello, my name is Joshua Topolsky, and you somehow have tuned in to What Future, my new podcast about interesting people in an interesting time on an interesting planet. Uh, this is our first show. We have uh, not shared a full episode with any other human beings yet. Anyhow, you know, it's all come together very rapidly, but also it took forever, which is weird, but sometimes that happens in life. And I'm just very pleased to get started and, and talk to people and hopefully, you know, crack open your brain and and then pull the brain out of uh, the skull. Actually, I'd be cracking open your skull and then I'd be pulling the brain. I mean, metaphorically, not actually, and then putting your brain back into your skull. So that's what probably what the show is going to be like for most listeners, I would imagine. So the first show is October 27th. That's today. That's right now. If you're listening to it on the day that the show came out, and I know that you are all of you. And it's very close to Halloween, which is my favorite holiday. And just generally speaking, October is a kick-ass time of the year because it's spooky and it's fall and there's pumpkins and the weather's turning, but it's not too cold yet. And uh, a lot of good horror movies come out. And so, of course, around Halloween, you start thinking about horror movies and scary stuff and ghost stories. And I have a deep love and a deep passion for, you know, it, the genre is called horror, but I think my relationship with that genre is sort of a, there's a very specific kind of horror I like. And I, and I think when I imagine the perfect sort of film, the one that is most sort of sweet to me in the month of October, I think of this movie by John Carpenter called In the Mouth of Madness. I've never seen it. And I love John Carpenter. I've never even heard of it. Oh my God, I, that's insane. You have to see it immediately. By the way, if you're wondering who this voice is, that's my producer, Lyra Smith, Hi. who will be making appearances. She'll largely be telling me about what movies she hasn't seen. That's just... <laughs> yeah. Now, In the Mouth of Madness is the third in his Apocalypse trilogy. The first one is The Thing. The second one is uh, Prince of Darkness, which is which was... I mean, it probably competes for being my favorite John Carpenter movie. It's that or In the Mouth of Madness. I kind of don't know which one it is. And I first saw In the Mouth of Madness. I don't think it was the first John Carpenter movie I saw, but I maybe wasn't so aware of, of his entire output. I probably had seen They Live and a few others. But, but one night I was at my parents' house. I was not living there at the time, but it was late at night. I don't really know why I was there. Maybe I had gone there to eat some of their food. This is not an important part of the story, but it is a part of the story. Anyhow, I was sitting on the sofa, I was flipping through channels and I had found this film and I was probably like, I don't know how far into it, but I, I had walked into this movie that I had not seen before. And it was these two guys at a diner talking and there's this man walking across the street with an ax in his hand. 
and it's a New York City street scene and everybody's like screaming and running away from him and he's just walking towards and eventually like smashes the axe through the through the window. It's an unbelievable sequence, but I was like, what is this? What is it about? And and the film In the Mouth of Madness is a very special kind of horror movie. And, and like most of the ones that I like, it is not that it is super gory, though there are gory moments. And it's not that like you see people getting repeatedly stabbed or getting their arms chopped off or whatever. There is like horrific sort of violence in it. But the thing that makes it upsetting and that makes it, even on repeat viewings, a horrific film is that it plays with the idea of reality. It plays with what we think of as our reality versus what it actually might be. And that our perceptions of this reality feel like sometimes they're just on a razor's edge. And and I think the films that I love the most, and, and John Carpenter has done a, a whole handful of movies like this, which are interested in this idea of like what is reality, but they're also interested in a genre which is called cosmic horror, which is the things that are happening are not that they aren't real or they aren't you know something tangible, but they're something beyond our understanding from a place that we don't understand and can't really communicate with. So when I think about the best horror, the stuff that I love, and I would say David Lynch movies fall into this category, you know, something like Lost Highway or Mulholland Drive, there's a lot of sort of this undercurrent of something isn't right with reality, like something is broken here, and and you kind of feel like you're never on solid ground with where it's going and what might happen next. And that got me thinking, as we are entering Halloween and Halloween season, about the horror of actual reality that we're currently living in. Like the fact that every day it feels like something truly cataclysmic or at the very least extremely disturbing is happening, right? If it's not, you know, World War III or school shootings or, you know, Trump winning in 2024, it's some form of, you know, sort of huge distress that we're all experiencing. And I think that it's hard sometimes to navigate that stuff in your daily life and then go and enjoy something that is supposed to scare you, right? It's kind of harder to be scared now because we have so much that's terrifying in reality. And I'm really excited that this is our first episode because I get to talk about horror movies, which again, I do love. But also a lot of what we want to do on the show and a lot of what I want to talk about on the show is the places where sort of reality and fiction meet the places where art and the internet intersect, sort of the way that we experience things and trying to understand what those things are and sort of make sense of them or maybe learn something about them. And so I think it's fertile ground in terms of what is horror and how does it work. But because we live in such a precarious moment, I think the concept of horror is changing and talking about what that looks like and how it feels is pretty important. And so In thinking about this, I started to think about new films that have been released that are really speaking about or talking to what is happening in reality and landed on this, you know, realization that Blumhouse, which is like now like the kind of the place where you find the new horror movies or the new franchises is doing something that is really interesting in that they are making movies that are kind of sometimes very much about the reality that we live in, but also weirdly fun which is hard for me to to sort of compute how you navigate the idea of being scared in a fun way against or versus being scared in a real way, which is something that we are all, I think, every day 
feeling. And so I thought, okay, well, let me go to the source. Let me talk to Jason Blum, the guy who started the company and who is literally personally responsible for some of the most horrific and also interesting films of the past like 10 years or more. So we have Jason Blum, the founder of Blumhouse, a master of horror, and he's here with us right now. Jason, thank you for being here. I know you're a very busy man. How much sleep did you get last night? I am uh, very careful about my sleep. I really, I really get, let's see, 12 to seven. I got seven and a half hours. I really try and keep it over seven. That's a healthy amount. I rarely get less than seven. And when I do, I promise myself never to do that again. I, uh, I got a lot less because I actually was up to like 2.30 in the morning watching mm. Some Blumhouse uh, content. I was I was watching uh, the Forever Purge. That's a good one. But I'm going to come back to the Forever Purge. I just wanted to say it's going to be a topic. So Blumhouse has not only done horror, but I think you're sort of synonymous with being the place for modern horror. But would you describe Blumhouse like that? I would describe Blumhouse as the place for modern horror. Eighty to ninety percent are horror movies. We do the occasional. Whiplash, Black Klansman, a handful of others. TV a little bit differently. TV is more like 20% is straight horror and 80% I would call horror adjacent or about horrible things. Okay, give me, what's horror adjacent? We made a mini series about Roger Ailes called The Loudest Voice in the Room. To me, he's a horrible thing. That's horror adjacent. Maybe just horror. Yeah, maybe just horror. We made a mini series recently for Showtime called uh, The Good Lord Bird, which is about John Brown which was about the worst thing that the United States probably ever did, which was obviously slavery. So I feel like what you said is true. And we really try and stick with projects that if they're not horror, they're tangentially related to horror. Right. Now we haven't done that a hundred percent of the time, but, uh, but pretty close. So take me back to how you ended up in this particular space. And my guess is I'd be surprised to hear that you don't have some love of the genre, but can you talk to me about, like what the moment was or what the film was that made you think this is a thing that I want to do? Yeah, I've grown to love the genre, but that's not really why I got into horror. I got into horror because I was caught between a love of making independent films and a strong dislike for the distribution of independent films, which is very broken, and a love of studio distribution because everyone gets to see what you made and a dislike for the process of studio production. Right. My goal in life was to make a studio film, and I finally made this movie, The Tooth Fairy, for Fox, before Blumhouse existed. And, uh, and making a studio film was the opposite of what I thought it was going to be. It was very frustrating. Distribution was great. Paranormal Activity came out about the same time as The Tooth Fairy came out. And what Paranormal Activity did was kind of coalesce almost 20 years of trying to find my place into the business in one weekend, which was, wow, there's a way to make independent movies that can be subversive. They can be about difficult things. They don't have to have movie stars in them. You can have a lead character die in the first act. 
all these kind of creative risks that you could only take with independent movies, which is why I liked independent movie storytelling, you could do with horror movies. But with horror movies, you get a studio to release them. And so really, I came to horror through business and the notion that I could continue my love of independent movies. But if you look at our originals and you take out the scares, they're really a series of like indie Sundance movies. You look at Sinister, it's about a frustrated writer who's trying to have another hit book who moves his family into a house that's very dangerous and he chooses his career over his family which is really kind of the storyline of an independent movie. And, and most of the movies that we've done, the original horror movies that we've done, are really independent movies dressed up as scary movies. I think it's true that the plot lines are often, you know, in, in some way almost art films. But Don't say art indie. I mean, God forbid, art films. <laughs> okay, sorry. I, I take that back. I wouldn't, would never describe one of your films as art. That's, yeah, that's as bad as saying elevated horror. Wow. Do you take issue with the elevated horror designation? Elevated horror is code word for people saying like, I'm better than people who like horror movies. Like, I don't really like horror, but elevated horror is something <laughs> I would stoop so low as to watch. Right. And sometimes even directors say it, which is even worse. Like, I wouldn't make a horror movie, but an elevated horror I would make, which is literally like a director saying, I wouldn't make like a, a bad movie, but I would make a good movie. <laughs> right. Well, isn't genre kind of ghettoized in a way? Like, I mean, this is true in literature as well, right? Like right. science fiction and fantasy is considered not real literature, right? Then there's a certain bar, like Kurt Vonnegut, who wrote a lot of science fiction, is considered a real author. And then the guys who wrote pulp or Philip K. Dick in his heyday would have been considered like this kind of genre, like pulp kind of crappy writer. But the quality of the work, the variance is non-existent. It's just as hard to direct or create a great horror movie as it is to create a great art movie. But yes, it is kind of ghettoized. And that's another reason why I really like it. Right. right. I mean, when you were a kid, you weren't like, oh, you watch Halloween and suddenly you were struck that you must create horror films. This is not like a lifelong passion for you. Everything in my personality and nature is someone who likes horror movies. I didn't dislike them, but I wasn't like a crazy horror movie fan at all. And I should have been because like, I'm kind of weird and I'm an outsider and all that sort of stuff. So I should have appreciated them much more than I did. But luckily, Oren Pelly saved my life and made Paranormal Activity. I mean, that's wild to me. I thought for sure you were going to tell me that you've grew up on, you know, Wes Craven and John Carpenter or something, which is, which I did. So it's interesting that you just were like, this is actually a great vehicle for filmmaking because of, and maybe explain this to me because I'm not in the industry. Tell me what was better about being able to do something like paranormal activity. The idea that you pay $15 for like this little indie art movie at the one last art cinema in New York, right? Or $15 at the multiplex for this other movie. It's so strange. Like the art movie, they spent $200,000 marketing this little movie and the the studio movies spent $50 million marketing the movie and the budgets also the budgets of the one movie are $3 and the other movies are $200 million. It's still 18, $15 a ticket or whatever. I just was so, always so frustrated that you'd work so hard on this, this movie and it's just very hard to get distribution. And once you get distribution, because they're competing for screens with these behemoth, huge American corporations, it's just very hard. So your movie doesn't play for very long. And if it does, it's a miracle. And you're begging everyone for favors. You beg people to go see it. 
versus this machine that puts like 3,000 versions of your movies out on Friday night. Just way more appealing to me. But so is there a shortcut with horror? Is it that it plays to larger audiences, even though you can- Yeah, make- there's there's a huge shortcut with horror, which is, it's like this Trojan horse. Like you can sneak these crazy stories into this totally mainstream system. You can sneak, get out, you know, or The Purge, which is The Purge is a movie about gun control in America. Now, if you pitched a studio said, hey, I'm going to make a movie about gun control, they would show you out of the office before you got, they don't want to make a movie about gun control. It's a nightmare for them. It's political. No matter your pro or con, half the audience is going to disagree with you. We don't, they don't want to make political movies. It's a nightmare for them. Right. But if you say you're going to make a movie about if crime is legal from seven in the morning till seven at night, well, that's a great concept. Cool. What is it? Like it's a genre movie. So you can use horror to get kind of unusual ideas to a very broad audience, which is which is so fun. That's a fascinating point. Like, I've never heard anybody articulate that. I did not understand that. I don't think most people are aware of that. I mean, obviously horror films are different than a big budget action movie or a, a drama or whatever, because horror is deranged. I mean, most horror films have it's ideas deranged. that are extremely bizarre, right? Yes. Even from the most simple of Michael Myers is going to just walk and stab until you know somebody sets him on fire or the very complex stuff, like The Purge is actually a very complex idea. I mean, in terms of the the entire thing you need to understand, maybe I'm feeling fresh from my viewing of The Forever Purge, but but yeah, but I didn't understand, I guess, like when you were first talking about this, what you meant, but it is like in like Mario Brothers, you're like taking the warp pipe to another level because it's like they will let things fly that would not fly otherwise. And there's a huge audience for it. Yeah, there's this great feeling of beating the system. And uh, you look at you look at IP the same way, you, like The Invisible Man, even that movie, that's a very, you know, forward-thinking movie about male power and abuse. It's the same idea. Like if you said you wanted to do a, a wide-release movie about those things, sure, you want to make a Sundance movie about, about those topics. That's what Sundance is for. The thing is, it's extraordinarily difficult to do. Right. Of the uh, hundred movies that we've made, not all of them are like directly about a social issue or whatever. A lot of them are just like straight, scary movies, which I also like. But it's very hard to to do both. But it certainly is like very exciting when we get a movie that connects with people that that is scary and also touches on an issue. That's like the magical triangle for us. Then let me actually bring it back to what I started talking about because I've been thinking a lot about this. And and actually, I wasn't intending to watch The Forever Purge as a component of this conversation, but then I ended up realizing it's almost the perfect movie to, to have watched discuss it because so many of the Blumhouse films do touch on pretty serious political and societal issues. If you don't know what The Purge is, by the way, and I don't know how you wouldn't because it's been a very popular series, it imagines an America where one night out of the year, all crime is legal. And to get all of this bad stuff out of our systems that we do all year round, they're like, if we just condense that into one day and make every crime legal, everybody will be fine. And then the next day, we'll just go back to normal. And that's largely what the films are about. And there's five of the Purge movies and a TV series. Anyway, the most recent one is, I mean, unabashedly about like white supremacy. 
I mean, just not even hiding it. It is right. It's got actual Nazis in it, and and it depicts an America which I think, you know, feels frighteningly possible at this particular moment. Um, there's a character who's listening to gunfire, and he says, "That's American music." The the different guns, and I think it's, you know, it's pretty fucking spot on, right? Like for the climate, but we live in a world that is terrifying in a million different ways. I think right now, like we're, you know, on the precipice of maybe a world war, you know, we've got like crazy economy stuff happening. There's still, you know, MAGA and Trump stuff and, you know, real neo-Nazism in this country. How do you approach where to draw the line? Like, for instance, we have school shootings in America, right? Where kids get killed on a pretty regular basis now. It's terrifying and horrible and like about the worst thing you can think of. A movie about that wouldn't be fun, right? I mean, I think we can we can agree that that wouldn't be like a fun Blumhouse production and you probably wouldn't go there. But how do you know when to draw the line? How do you make those decisions about what political topics you can go there with them? Well, there's a lot of things to unpack in your question. The first thing is that horror has to be scary. If you just depict violence or you just depict something gross, it's not scary. Right. So you have to make that distinction. And then the second thing you're asking is people have different points of view about this. It is my point of view that the more you show and depict, the more people are talking about these things and the more conversation there is about bad things in the world, the more chance there is to fix those bad things, right? Right. You know, some people have a different point of view about that, which, which is okay. We don't have a meter for how far we'll take something. The Purge movies are a good example. The Purge as a franchise, all five movies are, and the TV show too, the underlying topic of all of them is gun control. Each one has a different kind of specific thing that they tackle. I don't know if you saw the one, there's one with a female presidential candidate before Hillary ran, <laughs> I did see which was incredible. So each one had its own mini category underneath the category of the insane relationship that the United States has to guns, which is the purveying theory behind all of them. Right. The, the lens that we look at, just to answer this second part of your question with what I was saying in the first is, is it scary or an expose? If it's an expose, we're not doing it. And if we did any exposés, it was a mistake. It's got to be scary. It's got to be scary. It's got to engage the audience. No one wants to go see an exposé or they turn on a documentary if they want to see an exposé. They're not going to the movie theater on Friday night to see an exposé. Right. They're going to get scared. And so that's really the lens that we look at it. You could make a movie about white supremacy if it's scary, which I would argue, you know, The Last Purge was. I think it's scary because it's about things that feel real. Yeah, well, that's also true. I will say gun control. I don't know that I took away a message like pro gun control. I was like, everybody needs a gun in the world of the purge. Did you see the first movie? Yeah, a while ago. Because the first purge, it, it's very pointedly about gun control. I, I had this. Well, it doesn't matter. I had a disagreement about uh, with a critic once about all this. But um, but Wait, what was the what was the disagreement? <laughs> well, she said I, I don't think the message is very clear in the first movie that it's anti gun. Any rational person watching the movies, they don't think the purge is a good idea. <laughs> Actually, is that true, though? I was going to say, of course, there's like, you know, some, you know, 3% of the nutball population that thinks the purge is, is a good idea. The purge is supposed to be a cautionary tale of if we keep solving violence, 
in America and school shootings in America. And if our answer keeps being give everyone more guns and make them more powerful, we're going to wind up with the purge, which is a world no one would want to live in. But clearly some lunatics would want to live in it. I'll tell you a funny thing about the purge. The purge in France is called America's Nightmare that they translate instead of calling it, there's no translation for the purge. Yeah. So the title is like America's Nightmare. Um, and in, funnily enough, in Europe, and in countries where gun control is more rational, the movies are very well understood as a cautionary tale. In America, some of us are, are bananas, so we think we, we might think it's a good idea, which is so crazy. I mean, it could be because we've built almost the entire movie industry on like fetishizing guns. And I mean, some of the most famous films of all time are, you know, guns are very necessary for the main characters to get their way or to get to the point. That is very true. It's possible that it doesn't look that way because we actually have a gun problem right in the country. Yeah. How important is it that these things also have a message that they're also trying to kind of sneak in something political or, or societal to say? I think it's more interesting if they're about something. And I don't want to pretend to say every movie we, we've made is about something. Some of them aren't. Some of them are just straight scary and straight commercial. And there's a thrill to making a hit scary movie, absolutely, because it's it's so hard to make a hit movie, period. So to have a hit that's just a scary movie and about something is certainly a thrill. I think it's more interesting when the movies are about something. And we aspire to do that. But I couldn't run the company if I mandated that that's the only thing that we would do. Right. Excuse me. I couldn't run the company profitably if I mandated that's the only thing that we were going to do. So sometimes it just has to be a thrill ride. You're thinking about it in a wrong way. We read it. We love it. It's scary. We want to do it. Now, it's icing on the cake if it's about something. But even if it isn't about something, if we love it and we think it's scary, we want to do it. How many movies have you made? In the genre, how many have you made? Oh, I think almost 100, 150, 125. So you're a modern, clearly very smart man. I assume you've got data on all of these movies. I'm sure you're looking at all kinds of interesting metrics about how they perform. Is there any correlation one way or the other, any, any sort of data that you have about movies about something versus ones that are more straightforward, that they work well, they don't work well, there's certain markets where they, they blow up and others where they don't? I hate data. Okay, interesting. And I think that it is the death of creativity. Okay. And if we use data to make decisions, every movie that we did that's been about something would never have been made. If you use data, you would never make Get Out. If you use data, you would you would never make The Invisible Man. You would never make Split. Any interesting movie that we made wouldn't have gotten made with data. So you're rejecting data. I vehemently reject, oppose, and despise data, yes. You must hate Netflix. I, I definitely don't hate Netflix. <laughs> I have a lot of business with Netflix, yeah. but I would not want to work at Netflix because I wouldn't want to make decisions based on data. That would not be, that's not something, it's not something I believe in. See, that's interesting. I would have expected, and maybe this is just like, because I'm a deranged person who's from the internet and I think about like, a data rules everything. I actually think, you know, a lot of the problems that the streamers are having probably have to do with the reliance on data versus like the instinct of the creators, the artists who are actually making this stuff. But the, the problems that the streamers are having as it relates to quality have an enormous amount to do with data, not alone, but for sure. So that actually kind of leads into something I want to ask you about, which is I don't know how much you've studied Roger Corman. Roger Corman, for those that don't know, and uh, I apologize if you do know, 
was a producer who essentially started sort of the wave of B-movies in Hollywood. And he employed really, really famous directors. And he basically gave them no money, but let them sort of do whatever they want, like Ron Howard and Martin Scorsese and Jonathan Demme and Peter Bogdanovich and Joe Dante. I mean, crazy directors worked for him. And he worked with a ton of really amazing actors like Dennis Hopper and Jack Nicholson and Sylvester Stallone. But he made all of the movies really cheaply and very quickly and just like was cranking them out. Anyway, I've watched interviews with you and I've, I've read stuff. I think Planet Money did a, a show about Blumhouse and this kind of like, you know, cheap, fast and dirty method. But to me, it reminded me a lot of what I've, you know, read and heard about Roger Corman. Was any of what he was doing an influence to how you've done this? Yeah, I mean, I didn't know much about Roger Corman. In other words, I didn't like look at his company and say, we'll do that. But we share a lot of DNA with Roger Corman. We also don't share a lot of DNA. We, there's, there's a lot that we do that's the same, which is we make a lot of low-budget movies for sure. And no one gets paid unless the movies make money, all that stuff. The biggest difference between Roger Corman and Blumhouse on the movie side of the business, TV is another thing altogether, but on the movie side of the business is almost all of his movies were done by first-time directors. We almost never do movies with first-time directors. Hollywood puts an enormous amount of emphasis, great for our company, kind of dumb, I think, but great for our company on a director's last movie. So even if a director's done three great movies, if the last movie hasn't performed well, it's more difficult for him or her to get a job than it should be. Hmm. So I'm particularly focused on either showrunners, people who come from TV, Jordan Peele, right? Or directors who maybe their last movie wasn't a big financial windfall, but they have that in their past. James Wan comes up with Saw 1 and 2, like one of the most successful horror movies ever of all time. He makes these two movies for Universal that are interesting movies. They don't quite connect with audiences. The guy cannot get arrested. He comes into my office. He pitches me. I'm going to make Saw again. I have one constraint. I want it to be PG-13 because he doesn't want to be known as the Saw guy. Comes <laughs> up with Insidious. We just shot our fifth Insidious movie. Guy came up with The Conjuring. Guy's one of the most prolific, most successful people in Hollywood and one of the great artists in Hollywood. And he made a movie for my broken down company. I never, I had made one movie when it came to me because no one would make Insidious, crazy. which is the difference between us and Corman. And that, and that's a, that's a big difference. Is there a movie you've seen recently, a film that you did not make you did not have a hand in that you were like, I wish I had made that fucking of movie. Of course, of course. Quiet Place, I wish I made, and The Conjuring, I wish I made. Those are the two. Did that, you get a crack at those no, at any point? No, but but I still, I still, they keep me up at night. They haunt me, both of them. Well, like sort of like a horror film. <laughs> Obviously, like you've spent a lot of time thinking about things that are scary. My guess is you've got a pretty good sense of what scares people at this point. Would you say that's true? I would agree with you, yes. What to you in reality is scary? Donald Trump. And that's not a controversial statement to make, is it? In Hollywood? Uh, it's very controversial. 50% of the country disagrees with me. <laughs> so I would say it's about as controversial as you can get. <laughs> and there's a chunk of those people that want to do the purge for real, right? I think we can agree on that. You don't want to say it. You don't want to go that no, far. I would not go that far. I will not say that. I'll say that. We made a great movie. If you were going to ask me like one of my biggest regrets I have 
is that the hunt didn't get the kind of release and the attention that it should have gotten. The Hunt was a movie that was controversial, right? I actually did not see The Hunt, so I'm a bit ignorant here, but... You watch that tonight. The Hunt's one of the best movies the company's ever made. We would have been talking about The Hunt 3 right now, but Trump tweeted about it and a journalist wrote a story about it that was incorrect, but that's all it took to doom the movie, and the movie was doomed. And just to be clear, The Hunt is a movie about people hunting people. And what year did this come out? The Hunt came out the week before the pandemic began in March. (laughs) Well, that's kind of a double whammy. That's true also. But that wasn't why it didn't work the way it should have. But what I was saying, bringing up The Hunt, is I'm very against, like, dividing red and blue. I don't believe in that. um, And I think that it's unfortunate, not that anyone gives a shit about what I have to say to politics. I just hate Donald Trump. That's all. I certainly have nothing against the people who voted for him. I just don't like him. Hmm. The hunt is about the fact that there are extremes on both sides and that there's the majority of America's in the middle. That That's what it's about to me. There are extremes on both sides, but... There are extreme nutballs on both sides. Come on now. It's, no, I agree, except I think you will agree that there's only one party that's like, we don't believe in the results of the election. Yeah, but it's not the whole party, you know, that's, and, that's and, and that is... It's not the whole party. No, there are like a lot 79 of great of the party. Republicans. Um, Ms. Cheney, for instance. Who no, I agree. That. I agree. There's a few good ones in there. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Oh, I would totally disagree. I think most Republicans are great people. Most of them. I mean, people, maybe. I don't know how they are as legislators. But okay, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> that's a whole other story. Anyhow, okay. So, and this has been so interesting. Actually, so much more interesting than I could have imagined. I'm so glad. Not to say I didn't think you would be interesting, but you had answers that I did not see coming. You thought you were going to have like a, a fanboy conversation. No, I don't know. I thought, I thought you, I don't know what I thought. You're <laughs> just, your comment about data to me is kind of blowing my mind because everybody in the industry. Data is, you can't create, could you imagine going to an artist <laughs> who paints paintings and say, let's look at the data from the Gagosian gallery of the artists that have sold in the last 10 years. Now paint something based on that. Yeah. Data is death to art and creativity. But I can imagine that. And it does happen for sure. I mean, it's happening right now. With paintings? I have no doubt that somebody is studying what has been successful in art and they are looking at who is out there that is in a style or in a genre. It's it's the beginning beginning of the end of American dominance and culture will be data. Okay, and your next film was going to be about, this is going to be a horrific film about It's going to be a horror movie about data. <laughs> this exactly. is actually good. One other thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is you made a movie, it's called Unfriended Dark Web. Yeah, two. We made two. It's, it's, there's two of them. Okay. Yes. I mean, basically, it's kind of about the internet, right? Very much so. Whenever I see a movie that uses the internet or like a cell phone as a device, like technology, I find that it's very hard to be scared by anything happening on the internet. Do you have to work extra hard to make the internet or a phone scary? Is it even possible? It's impossible. I think that Timor and the guys who made that movie came as close as you can. I agree with you. There's no, it's like impossible to make something scary when you're staring at a screen or what else from the screen, almost impossible. Right. It's an interesting, like almost like this black hole for horror. A lot of people have tried it. Totally. As soon as you get to the screen, you know, the ring worked. I don't know why the ring worked. It's there's a screen, but it's this other worldly sort of portal. The internet, weirdly enough, doesn't feel like an otherworldly portal, or maybe it, it is so much of a portal. I think the internet is very scary, but it's impossible to make it scary in a movie. 
Well, I think that is about the best <laughs> possible place we could leave it. Jason, I have to say this was a fascinating conversation. I oh, really so glad. appreciate you taking the time. And oh, oh, wait a second before you go. Of course, there are new Blumhouse things happening. Yes, of course. Soft and Quiet. Give me two seconds on it. Soft and Quiet is a great movie directly about white supremacy, and it just it. hits it right on the nose. It's is pro-white supremacy or anti-white supremacy? It is very anti. <laughs> okay, and good. Uh, good. There's not two sides of white supremacy. That's not. The, there's not an equivalent of Democrat. I agree. I, you and okay. I agree. I'm just, just making sure. There's only one side of that. Okay. And uh, Beth, who directed this movie, all in one take, and it's um about this incredibly frightening incident that takes place with this group of women. And it's oh. spectacular. I love the movie. And uh, it's one take. It's one take. Yeah. And it's wow. great. And it's great. And it's great. And I hope everyone sees it. Okay. Uh, that's coming out November 4th. Nanny, which sounds like I'm not an expert, but there's no way the nanny is like a good guy in this movie. November 23rd. Well, no, the nanny is quite good. It's the, it's the people who employ the nanny. Oh, the nanny is the good guy. Problems. Interesting. Okay. Well, well, I mean, I don't want to, you know, you got to go see the movie, but the movie's great. Okay. Yeah. No spoilers. Yeah. coming out November 23rd. Actually in this last one, Megan which I assume it's pronounced Megan, not M3 again, but Megan is amazing. The trailer's out now. The trailer's fucked up. The trailer's upsetting in a big way. You know that, right? See the trailer. It's terrific. And uh, it's made with James Wan, the gentleman I talked about earlier. He's the, uh, he's my producing partner on it. And the movie's just fantastic. It opens in January. It's very, 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 very scary and creepy and, and will haunt you at night. The trailer's haunting me. Did you expect the viral kind of thing to happen with that trailer? Did you see that coming? I didn't expect it, but I hoped for it, and I'm glad it happened. Yeah. See, if you'd studied the data, you would have known that was going to happen. But, uh, yeah, you're not, right. You're not paying attention. <laughs> if I studied <laughs> the data, no one would have seen the trailer. If I studied the data, we wouldn't have made the movie. Exactly. Uh, all right, Jason, thank you so much. You come back and do this again sometime. It was a great pleasure. I'd love to. I uh, really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye. Well, that was a fantastic conversation, uh, mm -hmm. far better than I could possibly have imagined any conversation that I've ever had going. So, What did you think was the most surprising part? Uh, he had very strong feelings about Data, which I feel like yeah. is very encouraging to me and exciting because his films are successful and a lot of people love them. And I also think Data is overused some places, particularly in the creation of art. But yeah. No, it was good. I mean, it was fascinating that he's done a life hack on the movie industry with this idea of horror being like a broad release sort of thing that you don't have to spend a lot of money on, which is, I mean, truly an incredible point that I would have never thought of or considered. But it is true that, I mean, these are blockbuster movies they're making, but they are making them on uh, often on, on very small budgets. I mean, Paranormal Activity apparently was made for $15,000 and it grossed $193 million, which is like, that's like dream movie stuff. Like every person in the in the industry is like, if I could just make a movie for five cents and it makes $1 billion, that would be ideal. So, I mean, he's kind of cracked this. I mean, it's, again, it's like a hack, which I think is, is very cool. But um, I mean, actually, when I started thinking about this conversation, one of my prevailing thoughts was, how do you make white supremacy in a film ever fun? And I know that sounds like a crazy thought, but in the latest Purge installment, it, obviously the white supremacists are terrible. They are the villains. It's not ambiguous. It's not both sides. It's like they are unambiguously the bad guys. And 
It's great when they get killed. We love when they get killed. Everybody's uh, screaming out of their seats when they get killed. If you're like a neo-Nazi, I bet these movies are really weird for you. I mean, I bet it would be so amazing to watch a bunch of neo-Nazis watch the latest Purge movie because they'd be like, wait a second. Anyhow, but I think it is is fascinating that it can be a fun movie and action-packed and scary and suspenseful, but also it is talking about immigration and white supremacists and, you know, a conservative political party that's obsessed with violence and and guns. And it is definitely talking about that stuff. It is definitely, I mean, sometimes it's heavy handed, sometimes it's more subtle, but those are topics and the types of movies, those things are discussed in are nine times out of 10 are documentaries and they don't make hundreds of millions of dollars at the box office. So, you know, is it good? Is it bad? I can't say, but it's happening. And it is an interesting and very modern place to be in filmmaking that that maybe that's the only way to talk about it maybe the only way to confront the violence of the world that we live in is to present people with fantasy violence which blumhouse movie do you think you're going to go watch now well i am curious about the hunt i have to say mm-hmm. and uh that may be on the list uh i haven't seen any of the insidious movies here's the thing i mean honestly there's just too many Blumhouse movies. I mean, I'm, I think I'm happy. F- <laughs> I'm happy for them. Like, I'm glad it's going well. But there's so many movies. Like, like I saw Split, but I haven't seen Glass. Yeah, same. I think I've seen a later Paranormal Activity, but not the original. I have not seen Happy Death Day. Oh, you've got to see Happy Death Day. I have not seen the new Halloween. I have not seen the Well, that is our show for this week. We'll be back next week on Thursday with more What Future. And as always, I wish you and your family the very best.